0: Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 49. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi,
1: my name is Lucy Zhang. I am a professor of mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Pani Anual. I'm also a professor of mechanical engineering. By now, many of you have already heard about CHAT-GPT. Some of you are quite fascinated by its powerful integration capability, and some are quite frightened. In this episode, we will try to understand what's all the fuss about this new artificial intelligence tool and its role in academia. To do so, we decided to have one of our old friends, Professor Taylor Sparks, on the show to discuss everything about this new tool. Professor Sparks is an associate professor in the Department of Material Science at the University of Utah, and he is no stranger to social media as he himself has a podcast called Materialism, a YouTube channel, and actively uses various social media platforms for different academic purposes. Let's hear more about our amazing guest from himself. Taylor, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. been listening for a while, so it's fun to be on an episode.
1: Well, thank you. So Taylor, can you briefly introduce yourself to our audiences?
2: Sure. Taylor Sparks, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. So I'm actually teaching in my hometown. I'm teaching in the same department I was in 20 years ago as an undergrad, which is too cool. So yeah, I did material science as an undergrad, then I did PhD in physics. And then came back home to materials where it's much nicer, not as hard as physics. And I love materials informatics. So machine learning applied to materials, which is going to be tied into what we're going to talk about today using artificial intelligence for all sorts of things, both wonderful and nefarious.
1: Cool. So yeah, so you, you mentioned a little bit about artificial intelligence. I know that you are teaching this machine learning class with specifically focus on material science aspect of it. And I know that you have a lot to say about ChatGPT. So let's start with giving us a little bit introduction about what is it all about? uh, What's ChatGPT stand for? Who created it? And any basic information that you would like to share with our audiences would be lovely.
2: Cool. Let me set the stage by going back before ChatGPT just to get the background a little bit. Remember way back in the day. You guys might remember this. Do you remember the first language translator you saw? Do you guys remember what it looked like? I I saw my dad's. He had a Palm Pilot when I was in high school and it was this clunky thing and it had like this software pack you could download that would do it. And it was basically like an electronic version of like an actual dictionary. It could look words up, but if you gave it like a sentence, it would just do like word for word. It wouldn't like conjugate them correctly. If you were talking about school and then you use the word principal, it didn't know to use like the school version of the word principal. It might use the other version, right? So it was like a start. So way back in the early days of translation, a lot of this grew out of the field of translation. And in the early days, they hired linguists. And there's this famous quote from one of the early pioneers in this area who basically realized that when you try and force it with like the domain knowledge of knowing how sentences work, it's really, really hard. But if you just give it a ton of examples and let probabilistic statistics guide the prediction of what word should go next, it outperforms. And so he has this famous quote where he says, like, every time I fired a linguist and replaced him with a statistician, the algorithm improved. And so this has kind of been the this process of natural language processing, of learning how to use machine learning to engage with the written language in which we all communicate and write with. Since then, there's been a lot of big improvements. There's been packages like Word2Vec, right, where you encode the words as a vector and you try and encode their meaning relative to the words around them. And the big problem they ran into is that if you look at a single word in a sentence, like the word principle, you'd say, what's the next most likely word likely to be based off of previous data is It would do an okay job, but you had to make the window bigger and bigger and bigger for it to really predict the right ones based off of what came before and after. And soon that window just gets too big and it becomes untractable. So that's where things were basically in 2017. We just kept on getting bigger and bigger windows and it would do okay. But like imagine like translating a book. If a previous chapter had talked about the context of something, if you needed to make your next prediction in the context of that chapter ago, it wouldn't do it. The window wasn't big enough. So that's where. Google blew the lid off of everything with their 2017 paper, Attention is All You Need. Attention was an entirely new way of learning how words interact with one another. Instead of trying to just make a bigger window, it basically let every single word learn its relationship with every other single word all at the same time. So that process that we call attention is also called the transformer network. So now if you've heard of chat GPT, that stands for chat A generative pre-trained transformer. The transformers, that's the exact same. So it's basically saying in 2017, there was this new architecture for learning word embeddings, and it uses that same technology. Now there was, I don't know if they actually called it GPT-1, but there was a GPT-2 which was okay. And then along comes GPT-3, much bigger. The size of the model, like the number of parameters that they use to essentially learn relationships of words got way, way bigger. So this most recent one, it's actually GPT-3.5. Estimates on how much it costs to train it are between 10 and $12 million to train it one time. So this is a big deal. This has left the realm of academia. I don't know about any of y'all, but <laughs> I don't get grants where I could spend $10 million to train something. So this is a new beast entirely. In fact, they actually had the parameters wrong. If you, if you look into it, they had the parameters not quite set right, but they'd already trained it and you couldn't go back and do it again at that cost. And so they it, they would have changed the tuning had they actually been able to. Anyway, so there will be others that follow. There'll be GTP, GPT-4 and Google is working on something called Palm, which is the same thing. It's another large language model. And there will be many, many others out there. There's one called Bloom right now, which is open source that people could use. Now you have this interesting question of who owns it? What did it train on? And then based off of what it trained on, who owns it? This is a really murky question right now. I imagine you guys have all seen OpenAI's Dolly 2 that came out last summer. Dolly two stands it's it stands for like Salvador Dolly, the surrealist painter who made these crazy things because their Dolly Two algorithm, you type in text and it can generate an image that matches that text. very worth playing with. Since then, there's been a bunch of other ones. There's been Google's Imogen and MidJourney and many others that do this. But they're all types of generative machine learning. You take, and you, you train off of something, a bunch of examples. In the case of Dolly and that, they're training on images. In the case of ChatGPT, it's training on text, basically the internet. They gave it like Reddit and Wikipedia, right? They gave it open source text content from the internet. And then it can basically say, based off what I've seen before, I can continue making things that look like that. Now, with things like Dolly2, they add some conditioning where you can just say, don't just give me an image like the ones you've seen. You can say, give me an image of a cat or cat that's smiling or cat that's smiling in the style of Van Gogh. All those things are out there. But the question is, okay, so if you trained off of a bunch of Van Gogh's paintings and then you use Dolly 2 to make a new painting in the style of Van Gogh, is it yours? Like who owns that? Do you owe some money to, I guess Dolly's not a good example because he's dead, but take a famous painter now. What if you trained off of their style and then you started turning out things in that same style? So this is a very hotly debated issue right now in the AI art scene. Some people think that you shouldn't own it. Others are like, of course you do. Like think I don't know if any of you guys are artists, but do you go to museums? Do you get inspired by the works there? Do you like then have to put a disclaimer on your art that heads up, I did spend some time in the Smithsonian and so I did see these works of art and so no of course not you're just take inspiration from what you see so that's that's the other side of the argument and I don't have a strong opinion on the matter I hear both arguments and I I get where they're coming from but it's the same thing with chat GPT.
0: So quick question what's the impact on the academy.
2: So right now, so tomorrow, for example, at the University of Utah, we have a whole hour and a half long event talking about what does ChatGPT mean for us as it relates to education, research, assessment. It's going to touch on all of those things. They have six speakers on one of them where we're all going to give our perspectives. And some of them are like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. Because if you've tried playing with ChatGPT, go ahead right now, hop over there and type in, you know, type me a 500 word essay on high entropy alloys it will blow your socks right off your feet. Like it's amazing how realistic that is. It would be very hard, you know, I think certainly shorter essays, it's going to be extremely difficult for any academic to judge whether or not that came from a human or whether they just prompted in that text and said let it rip. And so this has prompted places like the New York Times and others to say that the college essay is dead uh, and that's been like a long-standing mode of assessment. You teach, you lecture, you have them read, you discuss things in class, and you say, now you're going to show me that you understood this by synthesizing this essay where you talk about it. And if that's the mode that you primarily relied on, then I actually agree. I think that that mode is dead. It's too powerful. These things really can – a student could skate through your class with no effort at all and generate marks that suggest that they understood the material when they maybe did not at all.
0: So I was gonna say just to follow-up. So what happens as we faculty members have graduate students and they put together their thesis? How do we know that the ideas that they generate are unique and it's not something that was put in and it was spit out? I mean, it does take five, six years to obtain the PhD now, but <laughs> maybe it, you know, it might shrink down to you know three or yeah. two years. So how do you? Do you think it's a disadvantage in some way when it comes to how the academy thrives off of graduate students and generating faculty members and professors? What are your thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, that's like three questions in one. So (laughs) let me kind of address them separately. First is like, how do we catch it? Right. How do we know? Which I think most faculty, the first thing that they try this out and they see the demonstration of like generating an essay, that's their first thought, like, oh my gosh, how, what do I do? How do I catch this? Then your second question was like, what does this mean for like training PhDs or their sort of their timeline in grad school? Is it going to be less or more? And then how does that impact our, us and our research, right? Those are kind of three totally different areas. So let's talk about the first one first. There are software packages out there that use machine learning models classifiers that classify a versus b they can classify real human text or chat gpt text so i've tried these i don't find them particularly compelling i don't think that they're amazing and even if they were amazing it's going to be like this arms war of like the better that the detectors get the better that the con artists will get and back and forth so i don't want to play that game personally i think that that's like a i, I don't want to spend my energy there right because it's just going to be like chasing down your homeworks on chegg like just write new homeworks is kind of how I feel on it. In our case, we need to change the way that we need, that we do assessment. So that's how I feel about that. Let me go to the second one. Students, our graduate experience, even undergraduate experience, is going to be radically different. There's so many tools showing up where you can use ChatGPT for good or bad things. Yeah, if you want to, you could have it write the introduction of your paper And it would probably fool a couple of reviewers, but it might put totally spurious stuff in there. I mentioned that these are large language models, right? They train off of lots of examples, but it's not like all that data that trained off of was perfectly vetted, not remotely. You get a bunch of bad stuff in there. In fact, the original GPT-2 model was filled with like, really like, it reflected the bias, like whether that's racism or just mean, like comments, like the fact that like, if it's on the internet, that's what it learned from. People have learned how to like, systematically remove bias from large language models. And there's all sorts of ways. Like you could take a model that used to put out the doctor is, and it would use like masculine pronouns just because that's primarily what it saw in the training data and they can actually transform it. So it will do not that. So there's people working on that and that that's an active area of research, but it's just, the fact is like, you're going to be able to do good and bad with this. No matter how good they get GPT or chat GPT-3, it's always going to be possible to do good or bad things with it. And so I think it is much more important for us as educators to train students in the ethical use of this tool. I think it's like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't, as uh, my friend Raimundo Ariave says, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. This thing is out. Like there's now open access versions of it coming online, things like Bloom. So even if chat GPT becomes too expensive to use for whatever reason, there's going to be other ones. Like, so rather than fighting it that way, I think, personally, my opinion here, as faculty, we should just be training students, what is the right way to do it. And we should think of it the same way as students graduating from calculus, where they did things by hand, to now as engineers, you're all engineers and STEM people. Maybe in physics, you still do integrals and derivatives by hand, but I don't, (laughs) I never do that anymore. I use solvers, I use scikit-learn, I use scipy, I use all these tools that do that stuff for me. And I'm real that I don't have to do this anymore because I can accomplish a lot more myself personally. So I feel like this is the same thing, but now with the written text, instead of expecting them to be able to be amazing compositional writers that understand grammar, that understand the verve and grace that goes into writing, we can have them co-write text with these generative models and take much more of an editorial or a revisionary role on it, a fact-checking role a, a brainstorming role alongside of it, which is a different skill set, and I would argue it's a higher skill set. So we can, you can still write, but you're going to be taking much more inspiration and tools from existing things. Otherwise, it'd be like penalizing students who they learned how to spell when they were in grade school, and then they get to college, and our universities pay for things like Grammarly. They pay for it. What well, didn't you learn how to spell? Of course you did, but like. We no longer care about that because that's like a lower level way of thinking is worrying about spelling. We're more worried about the content. I see this in the exact same light. Yes, it's important to learn sentence structure and writing and composition and organizing an essay and like the the big pictures like that. But I'm way more interested in that they can actually use this to generate things that are interesting and good than if they did it 100% 100% themselves or used assistance.
3: I think that's very interesting. First of all, I want to say I love using those integration tables. I just love them. I have copies of them still on my shelf and I use them whenever I need to. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I back back to the talking about ChatGPT here. I think earlier you mentioned about a lot of benefits It seems like that It it seems like we can embrace it if we work appropriately and the students can benefit from it uh, appropriately if they use it appropriately. I mean, we always have those ethic training, at least in engineering school here uh, in my university, we have ethic training. The first year they come here, we talk about you don't cheat, you don't do this, don't do this. Otherwise, it's considered as cheating. You have to go then through all these uh, ethics review board and all that in order to uh, clear yourself. So is that something that we need to start thinking about in their first year or even earlier, maybe in high school or maybe in middle school, where they need to start thinking or the teachers need to start thinking that certain things you can do and certain things you cannot do?
2: Absolutely. I think as soon as they're expected to start doing writing for assessment, then you have to start introducing this. And I think that you have to change your perspective from when I'm when the student is done, I'm gonna read their essay and I'm gonna give it a score. That can't be the only thing you look at. So for example, I teach a lab class in the fall. When I come back from sabbatical, I will be teaching this intro to MSE course where they do a, a bunch of things and they have, they learn how to write lab reports. So what I'm planning on doing is not having them turn in a final lab report. And I read it and I say, "Now on your honor, you're going to tell me that you didn't use ChatGPT because I want them to use ChatGPT, but I want them to learn how to use it the right way. So what I'm going to have them turn in is the prompts they use, the output that it gave, what they did with that. How did they go through it and check that all the values were correct? Like I'm expecting them to turn in sort of a story that shows how they came to their final product instead of just the final product. Because again... I think they should be using this. I think industry is expecting them to learn this tool. Maybe it's a bit early to say that, but I think they will. I think the industry is going to expect our engineers and our scientists and our students to have this technique. So I want them to learn how to use it appropriately. And that means that they have to show their work. Just like in math, you have to show your work. So uh,
1: Taylor, so you don't think that this chat GPT is going to be a barrier in front of our college or or students in high school and prevent them from developing critical thinking skills. So you think that it can be used to help them to establish those tools and skills. Is, is that correct?
2: I think if we use the same assessment that we've always been using, it will be a huge problem. It will be a barrier to critical thinking. I think if we change the way that we do our assessment, if we change the way that we expect them to report and show how they're using this tool, it could be a great benefit.
1: But I think that we need to, I guess, educate our students that, and we need to trust that they are mature enough to use these tools the way that we are guiding them to use it.
2: Yeah. And again, I think the two biggest concerns I would have is I don't want them to be lazy and just like punch in and not do any work because then they're not doing the critical thinking. They miss out on that. That's one big thing I want to teach them that they need to avoid. And the second thing is that these things hallucinate, right? That's the term that gets used. When a chat GPT or something turns out completely nonsense values, we call that a hallucination.
3: I think, you know, that, that takes us to my next question, which is about research. When we do research, Typically, you write a you you write those out into a publication form, article form, or you write those into a grant proposal. So these are all writings or paragraphs of your ideas. Now these ideas are typically new, so new enough that you don't really see much that can be searched in the database, at least in terms of the idea itself. Now, how do you think? ChatGPT plays a role in the research arena in terms of writing paper, being a co-author of a paper, for example, or how we can filter those out or in to proposal writings?
2: Yeah, good question. So it was trained in the year 2021. And so it'll tell you, if you go to use ChatGPT and say, who won the World Cup in 2022, it'll say, I'm just a chatbot and I was trained in 2021. And I don't know that because they have reinforcement learning taught it because it was embarrassing. Because at first it was saying like, well, Brazil won, of course. And it's like, ah eh, did not, right? So they've, anyways, it is going to be limited. Like if there's a new discovery, if Kim, Lucy, Pania paper comes out where you guys discover some rad new thing in the year 2023, and then I try and say, using the Kim, Pania, Lucy equation, come up with a research proposal in this other system, it'll turn out something. It's going to say something. It will be full on hallucinating. So that's, that is a limitation, but I don't think that's how most people should be using chat GPT. I think most people should be using it. Maybe in the introductions of your papers, I will definitely be using it there more in the refining. Like you could say like, here's my arguments that I have Help me organize them into a compelling research statement. That's the sort of thing that I think people will be using it for in grant proposals. Or if there's a component where you are using an established technique, but on a new system, you could ask it to help formulate what that might look like. Look, I don't even know if proposals are the right place for this. Certainly, you're going to start to see, I don't know if NSF has a policy yet on it, but there will be soon if there isn't. And they may try and outlaw it. And I hope they don't. I hope that they embrace it. You're seeing journals, publications already come out with policies. Just last week, science and nature both came out with policies. They published editorials, op-eds, where they said, here's our... Policy and now a bunch of others are following suit. I think nature's policy is very reasonable. Both of them said, science and nature both said, no, Chat GPT is not going to be an author. That's silly, because you've probably seen they're shooting around the internet. There's a few of these papers where people have listed Chat GPT as a co-author. That's silly. I get the idea that if it was trained off of so many things, like you got to attribute it to something. So that I, I get it, but I think it's more about being provocative when people did that. So they both said, no, it's not an author. And I think the argument by, I think it was science had a good argument. Why not? Because they basically said like authors have to be accountable and this can't be accountable. So I think that that's a good response. But then nature, they went on to say, you can use it. You need to explain exactly how you used it in the, the section that's most appropriate. I think they said the method sections would be for most people, maybe the acknowledgement, maybe it'll be different, but you need to say exactly what and how you did it. Science took another tack. They said it is academic misconduct to use it in any way, in figures, in text, in in the data, in any aspect of it. It is academic misconduct. I think that that will be changed. There's no way that stands because I'll tell you what: scientists are going to use it, and then somebody's going to come along with Chat GPT zero or something like that, a detector, and they're going to say, "Ah, oh, check it out. I found one of Kim's students. They used it in a paper. Therefore, this is academic misconduct. You have to retract that paper." There's no way that's going to stand. I think that it's inevitable that we use this tool. I think it was short-sighted, knee-jerk reaction for them to make that policy, and it's probably going to get updated, but maybe I'm wrong. I I just think that's what's going to happen. I think nature has a sensible policy. You should tell people if you used it in in your writing. You should make it really clear. I personally think that it should be more of a first draft sort of thing and that you demonstrate very clearly how you revised on top of that and how you fact-checked it more importantly, but that's my take on it.
1: I think that those papers that they are using, chat GPT's as a co-author, I wonder that how they decide whether it's the third author or the fourth author or the fifth author, how, why not corresponding author? So that's, I'm always curious. And I think that uh, I, I like nature's uh, policy on it too, because I think that it's more realistic, but using it for for proposals. So do you think that, for example, if you are writing, uh, I don't know, NSF proposals and we are using this for our introduction, not the, obviously it cannot come up with the science questions that it's very novel. So, do you think we are obligated to mention that we use Chat GPT?
2: Let me talk about proposals and papers separately. With papers, I've already done it, I've already put it in my acknowledgments. In fact, we in 2018 published a paper that used GPT 2, right? This first version, we had it write the conclusion of our paper, and we send the acknowledgments. Because our paper used a transformer for the first time in material science to encode this learning. It was, it was a novel application of the transformer. And so to sort of tongue-in-cheek drive that point home, we said, this is a powerful technique and let us show you how powerful it is. It wrote the conclusion of our paper and we put that in acknowledgement. And it was, it was like a paragraph. It was relatively brief because GPT-2 is not as good as chat GPT-3 or chat GPT. But I, we, we set it straight up in the paper. I just used it last week. I wrote an article on sabbaticals because I'm on a sabbatical right now. And so I had ChatGPT interview me. I said, interview me about my experience on my sabbatical. And it started asking questions like, all right, for this section, ask me about what it's like to homeschool my kids. And I told all the woes of homeschooling my kids. And then I said, now turn that into three paragraphs and I'm going to put it in this. And and it turned it out. Now, I, I modified it pretty heavily afterwards. But because I did that all the way through that paper, uh, which will be coming out March 1st, I put in the acknowledgments, special thanks to OpenAI's chat GPT-3, which I used and I described how I did it. I said that it interviewed me and then it turned out the paragraphs associated with it. And then I revised those. That's how I decided to do it. Proposals, I don't think I would say anything because that's not like a public document that is like going to be cited and used. I, I guess it is technically a public document. You can like, we've had people like FOIA request those before, which is weird. But it's not like an article where it's like you're setting the record straight for something. This is proposed ideas. It's not the final draft. It's it's very brainstorming. That's what proposals are. And so I don't know if I would use it. I guess if they start requiring it, I will. But otherwise, I will not. And I'll tell you, I use it all day long. I have my open AI ChatGPT window up. It's the first thing I open next to my email. And I have it up all day long as my constant. I answer emails with it. I, I copy and paste the student from you know whoever that emailed me wants to join my group. I say tell them that I'm not taking a student, but be nice about it. And I send it back to them. It's beautiful. So you right? have
1: your own personal secretary. It's Hallelujah. Everything for you, and it's like
2: <laughs>
1: I've I, never heard of using it as answering emails. So I haven't. I haven't tried that. So I guess I'm gonna after this. But my experience is that when I I ask technical questions, I guess back to the very early on questions, it sometimes is just like, oh, come on, this does not make sense. This is nonsense. Can you be trained better to answer this properly? Hopefully it doesn't do that for my emails. But uh, so I'm I'm, I'm curious to know what's going to do.
2: Yeah, I see a lot of people, I would say, over-focusing on... I don't want, it depends on what audience I'm talking to. I think to academics, they're over-focusing on the hallucinations, on where it goes wrong. And so they think, oh, there's no value. This is just, it's spitting out pure noise. It's definitely not spitting out pure noise. There is so much value in what it can turn out along with some garbage. And then other people overhype it the other way and say like, oh, it makes no mistake. It's perfect. It's ready to go. It can, it can write your proposal for you. They clearly haven't tried it because it can do like a page at a time, right? And it's, And it will put nonsense in there. The reality is somewhere in the middle it sure can do amazing things. It sure can be abused. I think that we should think of this as just a real turning point. This is like, there's been like triggers, technological triggers that have happened over the course of humanity. This is as much one as the discovery of bronze, iron, steel, silicon, transistor, things like that. This is just as in my view, because this fundamentally changes the way that we interact with information. What's done that before? right? This completely transforms the way that we interact with and generate information.
1: So I guess to wrap up, can you just tell us who and when should we use ChatGPT?
2: Well, if you can find a way to use it that's useful to you, I don't see why you wouldn't. I told you what I do. I have it open all day long. I'm not quite ready to start paying for their chat GPT. If you're a material scientist, you can pay 10,000 bucks a year to have access to this polling file. And they basically, they hire retired scientists to read papers and extract data. And so you're paying for the expertise of somebody's time to get really high quality data. It is crazy expensive. And if I'm them, I'm freaking out because their business model is about to get turned upside down because you're going to have, large language models that can extract that stuff and generate free databases very soon.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Taylor, for sharing your thoughts and for coming on the show. Hey, it's my
2: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: To our audiences, hope this episode helped you to see both sides of the coin and help you to make the most out of ChatGPT, because whether we like it or not, ChatGPT is here to change the way we operate.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic